way. So excited to share this passage of Scripture with you tonight. Luke chapter 6, where we're going to be. Hopefully, if you want those notes, that they are at all the tables here tonight, at least to help us. I'll get it later. As we get started tonight... One thing that I always try to do when I get into the Word of God is put myself in what's going on. And so once again, as we're traveling through the Gospels, one of the things that I'd, I'd like you to do that I think will help you get even more out of this passage is put yourself in this passage tonight walking with Jesus as one of His disciples. The great thing about Jesus is, unlike today, we could never get close to, say, famous, powerful people today, you know. Um, But if we were alive when Jesus was on earth, most of Jesus' followers were just everyday common people like you and I and any of us. If we wanted to get close to Jesus and be a follower of His, we could have had that opportunity and we could have been walking right along with Him, listening to these words that He's going to share with us tonight and watching what is going on with what Jesus is doing tonight. So you'll notice there in the first 11 verses of Luke chapter 6, I put Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. In fact, in verse 5 of Luke chapter 6, Jesus even says, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. We're going to try to share a little bit about what that means tonight. But first of all, you'll notice in the first couple verses, there is a confrontation between Jesus' followers and the religious leaders of Israel. Jesus was going through the grain fields on the Sabbath and his disciples picked some heads of wheat, rubbed them in their hands and ate them. (gasps) Some of the Pharisees said, why are you doing what is against the law on the Sabbath? Now, again, let's try to put ourselves in this place. These are the religious leaders of Israel. And for the most part, at this point, Jesus' followers are Jews. And they grew up being taught to revere the religious leaders of Israel. They were taught that, pretty much, they were never wrong. That they were the ones we needed to look to and listen to if we wanted to be close to God. And now all of a sudden they are following a man who seemingly is, is going against the grain, if you will, of the teaching of the religious leaders of Israel. And there's a confrontation that is involved. Now, I want to say this. When they say that you are breaking the Sabbath, they're not talking about the Mosaic Law. What had happened by this point was, and we're going to get to this in a little bit, but that man had taken the law of God and had added to it. And it added all these burdensome ceremonies and rules on top of what God had said to make it even more, you know, just way out there and extreme. And so what the disciples were doing was really not breaking God's commandment. They were breaking man's commandments that had been added 
to the Word of God. And that's why there was a confrontation. And notice Jesus doesn't go even into with them about, well, you're interpreting the Scriptures wrong. He doesn't even go there. What he does do is take them to the Scriptures and share with them a story from the Old Testament that they should have known about David. He says, haven't you read what David did, verse 3, when he and his companions were hungry? How he entered the house of God and took and ate the sacred bread, which is not lawful for any to eat but the priests alone, and gave it to his companions? And obviously the implication of Jesus is, God never had a problem with that. Because instead of starving to death, go ahead and eat, if that's all that you can find. And so, this is what's going on here. Now, then Jesus said, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. The concept of Jesus being Lord of the Sabbath not only means that He is the one then, if He's the Lord that defines what the Sabbath is, but it also means that in Christ, He's really the one that the Sabbath was a symbol and signifying all about. In other words, the Sabbath was about rest. We're going to get to this in a minute. But the idea is that that the Sabbath was simply trying to point people ultimately to the only true rest, which is found in Jesus Christ. He is really our rest, not keeping a Sabbath. In other words, people can even religiously keep the Sabbath and still not be at rest. Because rest doesn't come from just keeping rules and regulations. There are a lot of people that are very religious and very restless. Rest comes through Jesus Christ. Jesus even said this. Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30, Jesus says, Come unto me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The rest pictured in the Sabbath has really come in Christ. And I'm not saying that you can't have a day of rest, but our rest ultimately isn't found in keeping a certain day and resting a certain day. It's found in Christ. And obviously the religious leaders weren't buying that because they didn't obviously believe that Jesus was the Messiah. So tonight, as I put there in the notes, one of the things I want to emphasize tonight is that Jesus is your rest. He wants you to find your rest in Him. He wants you to be able to rest in Him. Sort of piggybacking on what Nicole said and what that song talked about, just... If we truly believe that God reigns and we truly believe that He's bigger than anything and everything, then we should be able to place it into His hands and leave it there knowing that we can rest in His sovereignty, in His greatness, in His goodness, in all that He is, in everything is. That's where we find our rest. That's why Peter said, cast all your care on Him because He cares for you, 1 Peter 5, 7. 
So tonight, I hope that you will find that Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. He's the one that can truly give you rest every day of the week, every hour of the day. He's who we find our rest in. Notice that Jesus faced the issue, though, of this confrontation with the religious leaders head on because in verse 6 it goes on to say on another sabbath jesus entered the synagogue and was teaching and by the way luke really emphasizes the teaching ministry of jesus christ if you study the gospel jesus is always teaching the word of god now a man was there whose right hand was withered and the experts in the law and pharisees watched jesus closely These words in the Greek language have a sinister tone to them. It means to observe carefully in order to ambush or trap. That's what the religious leaders were trying to do. They were there just trying, just waiting for Jesus to do something that again, that they could jump on. They were the ministry critics we talked about last week. To see if he would heal on the Sabbath so that they could find a reason to accuse him. Notice, Jesus knew their thoughts. Says to the man with the withered hand, get up and stand here. Can you imagine? Wow, it it took a little bit of courage for that guy to get up in front of all the religious leaders of Israel at that point. So he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you. Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or to do evil? To save a life or to destroy it? And then I love this in verse 10. After looking around at them all. Can you imagine again being in that room? And seeing Jesus himself literally going around the room looking at every person. Before he says these words. Stretch out your hand. And the man did so, and his hand was restored. (laughs) Now notice the response of the religious leaders. They were filled with mindless rage and began debating with one another what they would do to Jesus. It was okay to plot to murder somebody on the Sabbath, but not to heal somebody, (laughs) just to get that straight. And the reason I put facing the issue head on is Jesus could have, once he found the man with the withered hand, said, hey, these guys are going to cause trouble. So you and I, let's just meet somewhere secluded and I'll heal you in isolation. No. Jesus wanted to confront the religious leaders of Israel with their wrong thinking. And sometimes, sometimes God is going to lead us to let things go. Sometimes God is going to say, This issue is going to stay there. It's not going to go away. So just face it head on and deal with it. No matter what the consequences. No matter how it turns out. Because obviously it didn't turn out good as far as Jesus is concerned. From here on, they just wanted to get rid of him. But he, he understood the issue was not going to go away. So I'm going to face it head on and I'm going to deal with it. And he deals with it and heals right out of the open. Now, the dilemma that the religious leaders had is, again, they were all about, you can't do work on the Sabbath. But Jesus healed this man without doing any work. So they really had nothing to pin on Jesus, which made him even more mad. Which leads me to this final point in 
under number one, Jesus, Lord of the Sabbath. God's intent in giving the Sabbath had been corrupted and perverted. Yes, God gave man a Sabbath. And He gave man the Sabbath not to be a burden, but to be a blessing. God said, look, I created you. I know your physical limitations. I'm telling you, as a human being, you better set aside a day a week to primarily rest and recharge. If you don't do that, according to our Creator, you're going to be in trouble because man needs to rest. No man, no woman, no human being can go without taking time to rest. It wasn't supposed to be this burden. That, but what had happened through the years is man continued to add things to the Sabbath to where it became a burden rather than a blessing. And let me give you a modern day illustration of how when people take things to the extreme, how unbelievable things happen that are so tragic. A few years ago, I read that in New York City, several people died in a fire because there were people standing around arguing and debating with one another, is it, is it okay to call 911 on the Sabbath? Now I know, we, but that's, that's what was happening here. People didn't, it was like, we can't do this, we can't do that. The disciples were just going through. They were hungry. They just wanted to rub some grain together and throw it in their mouth. Why are you doing that on the Sabbath? And it reminds us how when man gets a hold of even God's good commands, the things that God meant to be a blessing, the things that God meant for our good, we can corrupt them and pervert them and turn them into something that God never intended. And that not only happens with the Sabbath, that happens with a lot of stuff that God has laid down. That's why in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus had to come along and say, you've heard it said, but I say unto you. In other words, he has to go back and basically correct everything that had been taught about certain things because over the years through history, it totally lost the intent that God meant for what he said. And we see that happening here. We need to be careful that we are just simply, purely taking what God said and we're not subtracting from it and we're not adding to it. That we're not missing the intent. For instance, Sabbath. Let's go back to David. Let's go back to what Jesus did. It goes back to the spirit of the law versus the letter of the law. Even when you're talking about God's command, God would say, based upon his approval of what David did, that even in the ceremonial law, people matter more than ceremony. And so even in the things I told you to do ceremonially, don't put ceremony ever above people. People matter more. And it's okay then to just do the spirit of the law rather than the letter of the law. Anyway, I could spend all night on this. Let's move on. Good stuff to come. Jesus' method or model for ministry. A couple things. Verse 12. It was during this time that Jesus went out to the mountain to pray and spent all night in prayer to God. And this is very significant in the context. 
Because the very next day, he comes back and he begins to choose his disciples. And I put there, praying for guidance. Even as the Son of God, he modeled for us the fact that when we have decisions and choices to be made, we need to spend time in prayer and ask God for guidance. Jesus spent all night in prayer. And then, coupled with that all night in prayer, came and began to choose who he wanted as his 12 closest followers. Which leads to the next method or model for ministry. Not only is prayer a high value with Jesus, but multiplying himself through a chosen few, not a hosen few. A chosen few. The reason that's important is because that should be the same model and method for us. We should be spending lots of time in prayer, and we should be seeking to multiply ourselves through just a chosen few. We can't impact everyone. No one can do that. And and if Jesus chose 12 to primarily invest himself into, how do we think we're going to effectively invest and disciple and multiply ourselves with all these different people? It doesn't work. That's why even within a church like ours, it's going to have different groupings of people in it. And there's going to be different ministry going on in all different ways because not one person the pastor, anyone, is going to be able to effectively multiply themselves through everybody. And even within Jesus' own 12 disciples, notice that there were three that sort of even rose above the other nine. And it wasn't because Jesus was playing favorites. I, I'm just going to say it. I really dislike, I'm not going to say the word hate, I really dislike the whole, the whole thing of clicks when people start saying, there's clicks. First of all, define to me what a click is. Because, at least from my understanding, you're going to have groups of people that are going to be closer to them, each other, than they are anybody else. That's just the way it is. We're all not going to be equally involved in each other's lives. If you want to accuse of somebody having a click, then accuse Jesus of having a click. He chose 12. And out of that, he chose three, Peter, James, and John, to go a little bit further. It's the idea that we're only going to be able to really be a part of only a certain number of people's of lives effectively. That's it. And the people that sit back and complain about there's cliques, well then get your own clique and form your own group and do your own thing. Because that's what Jesus did. The thing I want to point out though is the fact that in God's plan, it was God's plan then and it is still God's plan today that he multiplies himself through us. God doesn't have a plan B that if it doesn't work out that men witness for Christ, that, okay, God's going to start sending the angels down and stuff. No. God's plan has always been, I work through men and women. Just like he did in his day. 
And he's doing the same thing today. And he wants all of us to just surrender our lives to him and let him work through us and touch other people's lives. That's always been his model for ministry. And that will always be his model for ministry until the end of time. God works through people. And he wants to work through you. Don't ever forget that. God wants to work through you. And then, pointing people to Christ because he is all sufficient. You'll notice after he chose the 12 disciples, and by the way, I didn't spend a lot of time on the 12 disciples, but I will say this, common everyday guys. They weren't, they weren't the movers, shakers, power brokers of, of the day. They were common, ordinary people. From all different walks of life and different stations of life and all that, they were just regular guys. And so again, that should be encouraging to all of us. Jesus, when he chose these guys, didn't choose like what would be the world's elite, if you will. But after he chose the twelve, notice verse 17, he came down with them and stood on a level place and a large number of his disciples had gathered along with a vast multitude from all over Judea. They were coming from everywhere. I mean, there were people coming from everywhere. There were multitudes of needy people all over the place. They came to hear him, to be healed of their diseases. They were, had unclean spirits that were brought out of them. The whole crowd, verse 19, was trying to touch him and power was literally coming out from him and healing them all. It was an unbelievable time in Jesus' ministry. But the point I want to make is this. Under Jesus' method for ministry, see, pointing people to Christ because he is all sufficient. One of the mistakes that I made early on in ministry and have to even be careful of today because I can end up back there is that I try to be the one to fix people's problems and and be the one that, you know, and I have to remember, I can't do that. I, I, I don't, I'm not Christ. I have to point people to Christ. If we, even as Christians and people who love to serve and love to minister, if we start feeling like we're the ones that need to do this, when really only Christ is the answer, then that's why we get burned out, frustrated, uh, because we don't have an inexhaustible supply like Jesus does. Like there, we need rest. We're fragile. Uh, we can't keep going. Jesus is a wall socket. Jesus is just, he's, the power's always there. We always have to keep being refilled and refueled. That's how it is. Jesus is the Son of God. No matter how much power went out of Him, no matter how many people touched Him and He touched them and how many healing, it was never like Jesus was like, oh my goodness, I, I don't have any more power. Now, I'm not saying He didn't get physically tired as a human being. He obviously did. How much more then do you and I need to make sure that we point people to the one who's all-sufficient because we are far from it? And we can't meet people's needs like Jesus can. Now, he may want to use us to be his hands and feet. But even that, we have to be careful that we're not looking to ourselves to be the ultimate answer. Because we're not. Jesus is the answer. 
That's true in anything that I deal with as a pastor. Whether it's counseling, whether it's, you know, helping people with their spiritual growth or whatever it is, I I try to be careful that I'm not coming across to where they're looking to me, but they're looking to Christ. I may be there for a time to help them sort of maybe get back on the right track, but I don't want them to ever be looking to me to think that somehow I'm the answer to to the situation, because none of us ever are. It's making sure that we're pointing people to Christ. He's the all-sufficient Savior. He's the answer. And Jesus modeled that in his own ministry. Finally, tonight, Jesus' message for his followers starts in verse 20 where he draws a clear distinction. Notice in Luke, he gives blessings and woes. In verse 20, blessed are you who are poor, yours is the kingdom. Blessed are you who hunger now. Blessed are you who weep now. Blessed are you when people hate you and they exclude you and insult you. But then in verse 24, woe to you who are rich, you receive your comfort. Woe to you who are well satisfied. Woe to you who laugh now. Woe to you when all people speak well of you. And Jesus here is drawing a clear distinction between his followers and the world. And saying, look, there's a difference. There's a distinction between those who choose to follow me and those who are in the world. And I'm going to draw that clear distinction. And so I put at least three things down here that I saw. First of all, and these are general, obviously, God's values versus the world's values. You see a clear distinction there. Because Jesus, in a sense, is saying, don't worry about what you give up here on earth. It's all about what's coming. And so it's a total value shift. Don't, don't get caught up in what the world thinks is important. Not my followers. Totally different. Then eternal perspective versus temporal. If you go down through here, he talks about the fact that, you know, maybe you're hungry now, but you're really full spiritually. And notice he says in the woes, you know, verse 24, you've received everything. You know, you're well satisfied. You laugh now, but you're going to mourn and weep. In other words, there's a great reversal coming. One day, if you live for me, here's what you have to look forward to. If you reject me and you just want to get everything that the world has, one day you'll be left with nothing. The way I like to say it is this way. For the Christian, you've heard me say this before, For the Christian, this is the only hell we will ever know. Whatever we go through on earth, this is the only hell we will ever know. For the person without Christ, whatever good they experience, this is the only heaven they will ever know. And that's what Jesus is saying. The distinction between eternal or temporal. And then dependence on God or independence of God. If you study verses 20 through 26, one of the other main distinctions Jesus is making is, are you going to live in dependence upon me? Or are you going to try to do it all yourself? And these are the clear distinctions in this great message that Jesus lays down very early on 
for his followers. Because remember, this is at a time of his popularity when vast multitudes are following him. The only ones that really have a problem with him right now are the religious leaders of Israel. Secondly, B, setting down the primary ethic, love. Verse 27, I say to you who are listening, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who, you know, and the key is verse 31, treat others in the same way that you would want them to treat you. Love. And remember that the word agapeo in the Greek means to love someone seeking their highest good. That's what biblical Christ-like love is. Biblical, Christ-like love is seeking the highest good of the one loved. And that is the primary ethic that Jesus talks to us about. That's what he wants us to be known for. That's why he says in other places, by this, the love that you have for each other as brothers and sisters in Christ, that's how all men will know that you are my disciples. And Jesus calls us to a love that is radical, a love that is beyond the kind of love that the world could ever do because it's a supernatural love that is produced in the heart of a yielded believer by the Holy Spirit. It is not the kind of love that you and I can cook up on our own. There's no way. And that's why then Jesus challenges us in verse 32 to say, if you love those who just love you, what credit is that to you? The love that I call my followers to has to exceed the kind of love we see in the world. That's why he says, even sinners love those who love them. That's why he goes on then to say in verse 35, I'm calling you to love your enemies. Because it's got to be a love that exceeds what anybody else can do on their own. It's got to be a love that only the Holy Spirit can produce. It's supernatural. It is otherworldly. That's the primary ethic of my kingdom. That's what I want my followers to be known for. Then beginning in verse 36, I think he talks about the fact that we reap in our relationships what we sow he talks about being merciful just as our father is merciful not judging and you will not be judged don't condemn you won't be condemned forgive and you'll be forgiven give and it will be given to you i think what jesus is simply saying there the measure that we use in others that's going to be the measure that comes back to us he's not talking about our relationship with god because that's based on grace We don't deserve to be forgiven, but God forgives us. We don't deserve His mercy, but He's merciful. He's talking here about human relationships. He is saying to us, in this message, we need to remember that we reap in our relationships what we sow. If we sow sow forgiveness, we'll probably end up reaping forgiveness. If we sow a critical spirit, we'll probably reap a critical spirit. That's just the way relationships go. And so that's an important principle that Jesus wanted to lay down right at the beginning as well. Then, in verse 39, he starts talking to them about the principle of we cannot lead others until we learn to lead ourselves. He talked about the blind cannot lead another one who is blind. A disciple is not greater than his teacher. Everyone when trained will be like his teacher. 
And he's not using this as he's the teacher and they're the disciples. He's pointing to his disciples saying, if you're the teacher, then your disciples, those who you are multiplying yourself into, they can only go as far as you go. If you're not leading yourself, then they're not going to get any further than you are. That's why he goes on to then to say, then why are you seeing the splinter of wood, verse 41, in your brother's eye, and you can't see the whole beam or log of wood in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me remove the splinter from your eye, and you've got a beam in your own? Now he's not saying there's not a time and place to talk to the brother or sister about their splinter. But notice what he does say in verse 42. He says, first remove the beam from your own eye, and then you can see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. He's saying, we've got to learn to lead ourselves first before we can lead others. We've got to pay attention to ourselves first. We've got to carefully examine ourselves first before we start putting our eyes on others and seeing what deficiencies and corrections they need to make. We starts with us. Can't lead others until we lead ourselves. And I, I could get into this whole thing about being fully trained, which is a great concept he talks about in verse 40. But again, it's the idea of allowing ourselves to go through that training that God wants to take us through. It's not in trying, it's in training. And uh, Jesus lays that principle out for us. And then finally... Obedience is not optional. Notice in verse 46, he says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do what I tell you to do? Everyone who comes to me and listens to my words and puts them into practice, applies it, carries it out, executes it consistently, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug down deep. Don't miss those three words. We're going to come back to those. And laid the foundation on bedrock. When a flood came, the river burst against that house, but could not shake it because it had been well built. But the person who hears and does not put my words into practice, does not obey, does not carry them out, does not apply them, is like the man who built his house on the ground without a foundation. When the river burst against that house, it collapsed immediately and was utterly destroyed. The reason why obedience is not optional is because Jesus is teaching here in our lives as human beings, we're going to have storms come into our life. We're going to have raging rivers, if you will, come into our life. It's not if it's going to happen. It's just a matter of when. And if I'm not obeying what Christ said, then when those storms come into my life without a foundation, it's going to be bad. It's going to be ruin. There's going to be a lot of damage. It's, it's going to be ugly. Because there wasn't any stable, solid, strong foundation. I want to leave you with these words. In fact, I sort of etched them into my Bible. Go back up to verse 48. The three words, dug down deep. Literally in the Greek means went deep. 
It's the whole premise and principle of our ministry at the Oasis. You take care of the depth of your ministry, God will take care of the breadth. That's true in our individual lives. We don't have to worry necessarily about how many lives we're going to touch. If we simply put our roots down deep in Christ and go deep with Him, God will take care of that. That's not what we're responsible for. We're responsible to dig down deep. And notice this. I love this. In fact, I'm thinking about writing this somewhere where I can see it every day to remind me. I wrote these words in my Bible in this verse. The wise builder struck the rock before he laid the foundation. Don't miss that. The wise builder struck the rock before he laid the foundation. That is so important. So often we are impatient in our lives, in our ministries, in our churches. We don't take the time to go deep enough and lay a strong enough foundation. And uh, I just think it's a great reminder for us. It's one of the things that Jesus talked about to his followers early on in his ministry. One of those primary things he laid out real early on of why obedience is not optional. So the question I have for all of us tonight is this, as we wrap this up tonight. How am I digging down deep in my life? And in a sense, I understand I'm in some way talking to the wrong people because the fact that you're even here shows that you're one of those people that tries to take the extra effort and make the extra effort to come out on Tuesday night because maybe it affords you another opportunity to go down a little bit deeper. But we all need to be challenged with that even in our individual lives. To not be satisfied to stay on the surface. Because if we stay too shallow with Christ, then we're not really building a strong foundation when life comes and throws us a curve. And we're going to be shaken to the core. And I have seen it happen way too many times as a pastor to Christians where they didn't take seriously, you know, getting into the Word and praying and really becoming part of a good local church and getting connected to other godly growing Christians. That wasn't really important to them until some major crisis came into their life and totally just knocked them over like a wave in the sea. And then as they're picking themselves up from that crisis with sand in their mouth and they're dazed and wondering what in the world just hit me, obviously at that point, it's too late. The only thing that you and I can do at that point is to start building a better foundation for the next time around. To realize that it really is a priority with God that we dig down deep. 
and lay a strong and stable foundation. And thank you all for being part of that, where people see that you make that a priority, that you don't want just surfacey, shallow stuff. You want to get into the Word, you want to pursue Christ, and you want to go down deep. Let's pray. God, thank you once again for the wonderful ministry of Jesus. From the beginning of our passage tonight where Jesus showed us who really is the Lord of the Sabbath, it wasn't the religious leaders of Israel, it's Him. In Him is rest. And I pray tonight, God, that if there's just one person here tonight who is just, their insides are upside down and they are so churned up and they're restless and they are not at rest at all, that God, that they would begin to find their rest in You. That they would come to You and allow You to give them Your rest. God, I thank You tonight for the model that Jesus has given us for ministry, praying for guidance, multiplying ourselves through a chosen few, pointing people to Christ who is the only all-sufficient One, the only answer truly to all of our need. And then thank You, God, for the priority that Jesus gave to teaching the Word. This message is so powerful. It draws such a clear distinction between His followers and those who aren't His followers. Help us, Lord, as His followers, to adopt Your values, Your perspective, to depend upon You. Help us, Lord, to love people. And not to love them in the strength that somehow we can muster up, but to allow You, in a sense, to love through us. Even our enemies, even those who hate us and hurt us, Help us, Lord, to allow You to supernaturally love through us through the power of the Holy Spirit. Help us, Lord, to remember that we reap in our relationships what we sow. Help us, Lord, to remember that we cannot not lead others until we learn to lead ourselves. Help us, Lord, to remember that obedience to Your Word is not an option. We disregard Your Word and disobey Your Word at our own peril. Because life is going to come with some huge storms. And if we don't have that solid foundation, if we've not been a wise master builder, going down deep and striking the rock before we lay the foundation, then God, when those storms come, it's going to sweep us off our feet. Lord, help us to have that stability and that strength that only You can provide for us. And we thank You for all of this, for being such a great God that You love and care for us so much that You provide all this for us in order that we are able to enjoy life, not just endure it. That we can rise above the circumstances of life and not be swallowed up by them. And so God... 
May we be inspired tonight. May we be motivated tonight to leave this place looking to You and listening to You like never before. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you guys for being here. Hey, real quick. Sorry, I got a couple things. One.